Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of History Spelunkers, the show where I take a deep dive into an obscure topic from history and tell y'all about what I find. I am your host, Kelvin. I use he, him pronouns. And joining me today is my wonderful, fantastic, and curious co-host. Go ahead and say hi. Hey, guys. I'm Ryan. I'm using he, him pronouns. Hopefully you're ready to get into some niche history today, Ryan. But before we get started, I just want to tell our listeners that if they enjoy the content that we put out, please go tell your friends about us. We love our loyal listeners, and we would really love there to be more of you. <laughs> but, yes, uh, always more. Always more. Uh, but yeah, go tell your friends if you can leave a rating. I think you can do that on like Apple Podcasts. Go ahead and do that. Get us all the listeners raking in. So, but uh, anyways, I'm really excited for today's episode because uh, we will be asking some big existential questions about the nature of nationhood. Oh, no. <laughs> so, can I, uh, I stand the existentialism? Oof. But uh, without further ado, let's dive down the rabbit hole. As you may know, sometimes the current state of our nation uh, can seem pretty dark and unfortunate, really the state of the entire world from time to time, and uh, I'm certain most of the people listening, uh, and maybe you too, Ryan, have daydreamed about how the world would be if you were the one in charge. I don't go too deep into that because... Then I go on a little power trip of my own before I realize I really can't control much. <laughs> well, uh, you know, what if one day, you know, you just decide you in charge, have the absolute power to do whatever you wanted. Uh, you, you know, some people have messed around with that and uh, created their own country from scratch. Uh, of course, 
there's been a lot of people to do this. It's not a unique idea. Uh, but are you familiar with the idea of a micronation? I have heard of a few. I know, well, I know, um, like, specifically with it being the United States, it's not a micronation, but, like, the one-person cities, in a weird way, they're kind of like, you know, the ultimate ruler of that piece of land. They're, like, the only person, but they're still, like, a city. They have a post office and that kind of stuff. So I'm sure a micronation is just that on a larger scale, maybe? I mean, larger is maybe not the right term to use there. Uh, oh, yes. But uh, Wikipedia defines a micronation as a small, self-proclaimed entity that claims to be the independent sovereign state, but they are not acknowledged as such by any recognized sovereign state. So basically, they claim to be in charge of an area, but no one else agrees with them. Uh, well, I'm just about to make <laughs> Why not? Exactly. That easy. Why not? Uh, and a lot of these micronations are created in the same amount of time as you just did. They, a lot of the times they're done as a joke or some political protest, grand idea, or any of the above. But really all it takes is for a person to claim a piece of territory. It can be an island off the coast somewhere, or it could even be a child's bedroom. And then they just have to say that there is some sort of governance and control over said territory. Usually the person who's coming up with this idea declares themselves to be like a monarch or a dictator or the like. And then there are some people who take this joke really seriously and turn it into something of a hobby to where they pretend to run the micronation as a legitimate country, or at least they make the aesthetics of doing so. So, for example, one of the oldest micronations, uh, and I think the one that actually coined the term, is Telosa, which was established by Robert Ben Madison in 1979 in his childhood bedroom in Madison, Wisconsin. And now, was he a child? He was 14 at the time. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, I think he did it as a kid, and then, of course, he grew out of it. But then whenever he was older, he, like, got back into it, I guess, and replayed it up. Even more. I don't think I would want to. I don't think I would want to revisit anything that I did as a fourteen-year-old. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so whenever I say, you know, we're going to be dealing with this huge existential question of nationhood, what do you think a nation has to do in order to be considered a sovereign state? Or to put it differently, like, why is a country within the borders that they say it has? Is it because the country says so, or is it because 
everyone else agrees with them. I think you have to have enough other people, like outside people, to agree with you. Because if you say it is, then I mean, I mean, I guess, like you said, a micronation is not accepted by anybody else. But an actual nation, I feel like, has to have the outside support or the outside recognition. Because otherwise, anybody could say anything and it would fly. Yeah, and I mean, it really is a hard question to think about in the abstract because most of the world's borders have been pretty stagnant for some time now and everyone kind of just agrees and has been agreeing for so long that it's not an issue. And really the only time we see this come up is whenever there is a disputed claim. So like, you know, not to go too deep into it because that's a whole can of worms we don't want to get into, but like the current situation between Russia and Ukraine over claiming who belongs to who, or China and Taiwan, or Israel and Palestine. I mean, you know, they get heated because people can really care about which side you fall on in any of those particular cases, but the conflict of whose land it belongs to and international recognition and all of that stuff makes it. I think a lot of that just boils down to like, as humans, we, we sure do like our tribal system Mm -hmm. and we want the good things for ours and we don't necessarily care about anybody else's. And so if it, if it makes more sense for us to have it, then we, we want it. Yeah. Like, I think that's really how everything kind of just turns into, if you think about it on a really, really, like, low level. Mm-hmm. Like, who's in your in-group and who's not. Yeah, and, oh, that guy has something I want over there, and either do I make him in my group, or do I just take that from him, and now it's mine, yeah. you know? But uh, the, the two choices that I gave to you um, as far as what constitutes nationhood, whether it's because I say so or it's because other people agree with me, they have fancy names for it. So the first one is called the constitutive theory of well, sorry, the second one is the constitutive theory of statehood i.e. a state only exists if other nations recognize it. That's the one you decided to go with. The other one is the more complicated one, and it is the declarative theory of statehood. I mean, the name kind of gives it away why. But in the declarative theory, it has to be more complicated because, like we've established with micronations, if no one recognizes you, what's the point? And so the countries of the world actually uh, have came together back in 1933 and laid out the rules of the declarative theory of statehood for international law. And they did so in the Montevideo Convention of 1933, which was held during the 7th International Conference of American States. So 
pretty much the entirety of the Americas, both North and South America, are independent former colonial status countries. They claimed or won their independence. And so you could argue that they had a vested interest or knowledge in uh, how to sever themselves through claiming that they were now independent sovereigns, you know. But anyways, this convention drafted a document which was ratified by pretty much everyone in attendance. And because it was merely a weird quirk of international law, they were just codifying what the norms already were. They weren't making up anything new. And so because it how international law works, it applies to all nations of the world, not merely those that signed it. And so it's still current international law. But uh, the main gist of the document is that it lays out the four criteria of a sovereign state. First is a permanent population. You have to have people living there 24-7. Second is a defined territory. Those people have to be living in a certain spot. Third, a government to rule and govern the people. And fourth is a capacity to enter into relations with other states. And that is all it takes to be considered a sovereign nation. But okay. n notice it that only the capacity to enter into relations is required. No relationship has to currently exist or ever exist. It just, you theoretically could have contact with someone else in an official capacity. Yeah, I have a foreign minister. All right, congratulations. Blue yeah. That's all I need. Uh, in fact, the document, Article 3 of the document, explicitly states that a nation's existence is, quote, independent of recognition by other states. So it basically throws out the whole uh, constitutive theory of statehood. That, that sounds like a slippery slope. But I mean, like, you know, people, you know, if someone is currently under the rule of I don't know how to say this without getting into too deep stuff. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, uh... Keep a neutral tone to it all. I know, right? Uh... But, I mean, like, it, it does make sense that the... Uh, the impetus, you know, you don't trust other people to define yourself, right? So the same thing goes for nations. They define themselves, not the other way around. Yeah, but like you but like you mentioned earlier about like the American call like all of the Americas just being mm. 
like starting from a colonial side of things and breaking off into their own things. Like, would America ever actually be a functioning country if it never got any recognition from any other country? Like, oh, France didn't recognize it. It was like, oh, that's just another British colony. They're just going to stay out of it. It's just an internal quarrel. Like, if America had never been, nobody outside of the Americas had ever been like, oh, yeah, no, they're their own thing. We would never have trade relations. We would never have, like, the institutions needed to become our own thing. So, like, yeah, we can say all day, you know, they can say all day, yeah, we're not a part of Britain anymore. But if nobody recognized it, then they're just, you know, it's just like a lover's quarrel. They're just part of Britain, but they're just not not having it. Like, I don't know. I feel like in order to become our own thing, they had to be recognized by other people before they could even, like, actually split if that makes sense. Well, or am I, I, just, I might just be talking in circles. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's a difficult question, I guess, is to put it, simplify things. But yeah, so it's an important document of this international law and a lot of micronations claim legitimacy because they claim that they satisfy those four requirements. And however seriously they're actually doing that, you know, up for interpretation, but that a lot of them do that, and that is their justification. But where am I going with this, right? Why, why, why talk about micronations and 90-year-old treaties? Well, I would argue that most people, when asked why they created their four fun micronations, they will probably say that they were inspired by one micronation that is fairly old, trace goes back to the 1960s, and it is probably the most successful and indeed longest living and maybe even most famous micronation in history. I, of course, am referring to the mighty micronation of Sealand. Are you familiar I've with it? I've never heard of this. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not. You've never heard of Sealand? Oh my goodness. I've never heard of Sealand. I've heard of Sea World. Well, is that like the smaller, you know, it's like Disneyland, Disney World? No. Is it like in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky or something? <laughs> no, no. Uh, very different. Uh, so, that, no, I'm so excited now that you've never heard of it. But that is today's <laughs> episode, is giving you a brief history, the highlights of the Principality of Sealand. And after this brief synopsis, you will decide if they have met the qualifications to be considered more than a micronation, deserving Uh, of the international recognition. Got it. All right. So, first thing you need to know about Sealand, what makes it unique is the fact that the territory which it claims you know, one of the big four, is off the coast of England, but it is not an island. It is instead a man-made fort 
built out in the middle of the ocean that was created by the British military during World War II. Starting in 1942, the British Navy built a series of so-called sea forts off of the coast in the River Thames estuary. And they built these forts to prevent German U-boats from getting up into the river system and to early report German air raids during the Blitz because radar wasn't really a thing at the time. And so they just build a big fort out in the middle of the water and then they can just phone call radio in that, hey, some planes are coming and give them more time to prepare and maybe even shoot some guns at them before they get there. Now, at the time, British territorial waters, meaning the line of area that belongs to Britain, only extended three nautical miles off of the coast. This meant that because the fog of war and no one's really paying close enough attention to really care, a few of these sea forts happened to be built illegally in international waters. But like I said, the war is going on. No one really cares to push the issue. Yeah, that's not a, not a big enough deal. Not a big priority whenever you're fighting Nazis, right? So, one of these bases was known as Fort Rose, and it was placed seven nautical miles off the coast in international waters, so over twice the quote-unquote legal limit. Mm -hmm. The base covers an area of 168 feet by 88 feet in a rectangle and sits atop two 60-foot-tall concrete pillars resting on a sandbar. To give you the idea of the scale of this fort, it's not very big. and Yeah, it's like, I guess like a medium-sized house? Like, what's that square footage? About 68 by like 50? It, it's, it's, you know, it has some layers to it. I think it's probably like two or three maybe floors. I don't know exactly how thick the base part is and the pillars are hollow so you can technically go all the way down to the sea floor so oh, okay there is yeah. some space and volume in it but not a whole lot really but yeah so we're still talking on the size of like the scale of like a house not like acreage yeah like, not like a field or something you know so still very small yeah so, yeah, this was one of maybe a dozen some odd forts that were built out in the water. Most of them were within the three-mile limit. I want to say maybe four or five happened to fall outside of that boundary in international waters. But anyways, the war ends and the forts were abandoned because radar is now a thing. There is no war going on in Europe. You don't need to have people stationed out in the middle of the ocean like this. So most of them were torn down, but it's not the most important thing in the world. And so whether it's through 
negligence or divine providence, you know, uh, the Fort Rose Sea Fort remained. It was unoccupied, unclaimed, and in international waters. And this is how things would remain for years. And the uniqueness of the fort kind of made it an oddity, but it was steadily falling to the forces of nature. So now we jump forward to the 1960s. This was the time of rock and roll music, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and rock and roll, as we know, of course, is the devil's music, and it should never be allowed over the airwaves ever, lest it corrupt the youths. Yeah, there's a new Elvis movie about that right mm-hmm. now, right? Yeah, it's coming out in a couple weeks or something. But yeah, yes. that that attitude of no, uh, that was definitely the attitude that the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, thought whenever it restricted the types of music that could be played on air, uh. including rock and roll, but. The youths were already corrupted, and they wanted to listen to some Beatles, Rolling Stones, Elvis, all of that, you know, truly scandalous stuff. Don't tell me they, like, that was, like, the cool spot was just to go out seven miles on the ocean to be able to listen to that. Oh, hold on now. You're getting ahead of me. I was about to say it. Okay, sorry. sorry. I'll I'll let you you go. But uh, this growing demand for this type of music led many entrepreneurs to attempt to find ways to skirt the harsh restrictions, and they set up illegal radio stations that were unlicensed by the BBC. And a popular way to avoid the law was to put your broadcasting equipment onto a ship and sail out into international waters. Uh, I see where this is going now. Okay. So, uh, you want to guess what these radio, what this type of radio was called? Oh no, I can never think of a stupid enough name, especially from something in the '60s. I mean, they're doing something illegal on the high seas. Yeah, so there's got to be some. There's got to be some cool or very dumb name for it. Well, I don't know which one to pick. Well. I'll, I'll just go ahead and tell you. They called it Pirate Radio. Okay. Okay. Pretty, pretty tame. Not too bad. Not yeah. too bad. Um, but yeah, it became a very popular genre of music to listen to. One of these pirate radio hosts was a man by the name of Roy Bates. And Roy ran the channel Radio Essex. And instead of having to sail a ship out constantly, you know, and all that stuff, he decided to set up shop in one of these abandoned naval forts. Well, the fort that he chose happened to still be inside the British territorial waters, and so the feds got after him, and he was illegally occupying uh, government property and all that stuff, so... They kicked him out. Well, he was undeterred, and so on Christmas Eve of 1966, 
he moved his operations to Fort Rose Tower, which, as we have said, laid outside of the crucial three-mile boundary. Ah. And so his plan was to restart his radio station and, you know, get the jam back going. But a thought occurred to him, and he'd started developing much different plans for himself. That plan, of course, was creating his own nation. This territory wasn't claimed by anyone else. It was outside international waters. The British didn't want it, obviously, because it was falling apart. Why shouldn't he just claim it for himself? Old radio host hasn't tried to make their own country at some point. <laughs> Seems like the most random thing that somebody started off. I mean, that's how a lot of these stories go. It's just like, who do you expect to do this? Right. Oh, no, some dude that just wanted to play rock and roll in the 60s. Exactly. Like, um, but yeah, so and so it came to pass that on September 2nd, 1967, Roy Bates and his family and some you know, family, friends, and stuff, they gathered at the Fort Rose Tower and raised a flag that he had specially designed and declared the base to be the newly independent Principality of Sealand. And, of course, he, from here on out, would be known as Prince Roy. And as a birthday present to his wife, he declared her to be Princess Joan. So, how's that for a birthday present? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, upon a British national declaring himself to be independent from king and country, you know, they've had that happen too many times before. The British military isn't too happy with that. And uh, they also feared that this would set a precedent that someone with more ill intentions than radio host Prince Roy would try to attempt a similar stunt on another base. Um, you know, maybe the communist would be up to something. This is the 60s. Oh, yeah. And so the military quickly set about dismantling a lot of the other bases that were well I think all of the bases that were outside British territorial waters and just a lot of the bases in general um, but you can't destroy a platform that has people on it and so they really tried to intimidate Roy and his family to leave the fort by flying helicopters overhead, driving naval vessels real close, you know, really trying to get them to leave. But what jurisdiction do they have if it's international waters? I guess they can't really force them to leave, can they? Or I mean, we don't know yet, because they, the British think that it's theirs, right? That, you know, they put it there, it still belongs to them. You know, Roy is making this other argument. And, you know, only one of them can be right. And it just so happened that on one of these intimidation attempts, uh, some a government vessel came 
within like 50 feet of the base and had a very tense encounter with uh, Prince Roy's 14-year-old son, Michael. And feeling a need to defend himself, Prince Michael fired several warning shots across the bow of the vessel with a gun. Oh. And this, of course, got him to leave. But in England, they do not have the same protections on the right to own firearms that we have in the United States. And so even though Roy is claiming to be the Prince of Sealand, he is also a citizen of the UK, and the UK thinks that he is within their jurisdiction. And so he was summoned and tried for the illegal possession of firearms. But the British courts ultimately decided that the UK had no jurisdiction over the territory of Sealand, and therefore they could not prosecute Prince Roy. Wow. So the principality took this to be an instance of de facto recognition of their sovereignty, and so they continued to occupy the island. And... By 1975, this meant that they had written a constitution, they had a national anthem, they had printed passports for their family and friends, they even started issuing currency and stamps and all that jazz. So now, do they have the, the permanent residence as well? Or so I guess someone's with always it, on it? With it being a base, a lot of time... You know, there's living quarters on the platform. And so a, the family would spend an awful lot of time on the base, um, especially the son, Michael. I think he basically completely dropped out of school once his family moved there. I'm fairly sure. Um, this kid sounds like a, like a I don't know. Oh, yeah. This kid sounds well, probably a little crazy, but well, that's what the kid grows up and he ends up in some more shenanigans. Oh god! But so, uh, you know, I fast forward some years. You know, they're occupying the island, doing their own shit, and things are going good for Sealand and Prince Roy. Uh, they always have people on the platform. You know, if they needed to run onto the mainland or whatever, they had friends and whatnot that would look over the base for them. But being a former radio host who is now trying to pay for the maintenance of a decrepit and derelict former naval base in the middle of the ocean, uh it's not necessarily the most lucrative job. And yeah, it's not expensive. Very much so. But real estate that they had was a prime opportunity for a certain type of person. And I might, you know, I said at the beginning I hadn't heard of this. I might know the slightest bit about it if I'm thinking of the right thing. Uh-huh. But I'll let you I'll let you continue to see if I was my hunch was okay. or my remembering is correct. Okay. 
So like I was saying, he's trying to make the best of his opportunity in order to get some money flowing. And so he actually decided to try and sell the principality, or at least sell some of the territory in order to expand the principality and turn the nation into a real moneymaker. So he was working with a group of German and Belgian businessmen trying to negotiate selling off the platform and developing it into a legal gray zone tax haven for gambling, some duty-free shops, maybe even put a hotel there, expand the platform, build other platforms that connect to it, all in international waters outside of anyone's jurisdiction. You know, a real wild west of a place where people who maybe don't want their money to be under the watchful eyes of a government would be able to place it and do what they needed to do with it. Uh, yes, it sounds very nefarious at this point. Uh, well, he's not the one being nefarious, he's just the one hosting them. Oh, okay. Because um, that's not totally uh, like a gray area of... Of morality? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Ethical, moral issues aside. Sure. But uh, one of these businessmen that they were in negotiations with was named Alexander Gottfried Achenbach. He was an Austrian guy, I'm pretty sure. Austrian or German. And uh, during these negotiations, he became rather close with Prince Roy even to the point where he was appointed to be a high-ranking figure in the Sealander government. He was either the Minister of Foreign Affairs or the Prime Minister, depending on who you ask. Anyways, in August of 1978, Prince Roy and Princess Joan traveled to visit Achenbach in Salzburg, Austria, in order to finalize some of this plan to sell off Sealand. They left Michael, who at this point was now in his mid-twenties, on the base in order to keep an eye over the principality. Well, it was during this trip that Michael, being on the base by himself, saw a helicopter fly over the base and two men dropped down on wires and landed on the platform. Michael confronts them, and they proceed to hand Michael a telegram, allegedly from his father, the prince, informing him that the deal had gone through and that he should turn over the platform to these men, who had just jumped out of a helicopter. Oh, that sounds legit, yeah. Understandably, Michael was feeling a little bit uneasy about this whole thing. And he was right to do so because soon after, these two men locked him up in a room on the platform and held him hostage for four days. Aye. And 
after these four days, they informed Michael that he could either remain locked up as their hostage or they would offer him a fishing boat to take him either to the UK or the Netherlands. Michael decided to leave the platform. He originally wanted to go to the UK because, you know, that's where he's from originally. But the fishermen that they hired the boat to take, you know, taxi him over there, uh, was worried that he would be <laughs> caught up in this whole shenanigan. And so he took him to the Netherlands instead and just dropped him off in the middle of the night without a passport or anything. Oh. And so Michael then had to make his way without any stuff back across the channel to the UK, and he was just staying at his grandparents' house. And that's whenever his parents found out about what had happened. So now the royal couple is aware of what's happened, and they've made it back to the UK. They were also unaware at the time until Michael informed them that one of the men who held him hostage was Gernot Poots, Achenbach's personal lawyer. Oh no. And so... Exactly. Turns out Achenbach had a scheme to just take Sealand for himself because it's not like you can sue to stop him. It's not in the UK's jurisdiction. So now the royal family had to come up with a plan to reverse this coup d'etat that had unjustly stolen their principality. Well, fortunately for Prince Roy, he just happened to be family friends with a stunt pilot who had flown in several James Bond movies. And so they borrowed their friend's skill and a helicopter. And at three o'clock in the morning, they flew back to Sealand to try to retake the fort. They managed to catch the guards off guard. I guess you could say. And uh, apparently only one shotgun blast was fired. And the people who had stolen the fort surrendered without a fight. Sea land was restored. Yes, perfect. But there's more. So <laughs> most of the people who participated in the coup were sent off to the UK because, you know, what are you going to do about it? There's, But one person, Gernot Putz, the lawyer, he had previously been gifted a Sealander passport during all these business negotiations that had been going on. And so he was a citizen of Sealand. Prince Roy decided as the monarch that puts as a citizen of Sealand should remain on the fort and be tried for treason. And so a tribunal was called and puts was found guilty and his punishment 
was a fine of 75,000 Deutschmarks, and he was sentenced to basic wait staff on the fort and janitorial duties, such as cleaning toilets. Oh my god, this, this all sounds like a 12-year-old wrote this like action <laughs> movie or something. It, it's, Does it not? It's... Yeah, it's ridiculous. Like, a fake country, you know, it's like, okay, but yeah, they had a coup attempt. Um, but yeah, and they tried a guy for treason, and all of this shenaniganery. This almost sounds like a like an Emperor Norton kind of situation, yeah. if you, you remember the callback. Uh-huh, yeah, there's, there's some parallels. So yeah, Putz is being held prisoner, carrying out his sentence, and uh, Achenbach and Putz's wife, mostly, uh, they are not overly thrilled that this man is being kept on the platform imprisoned. So they tried to argue to the British government to do something about it, and the British government was just like, bite their hands at it, nope, that's not our territory. We can't do anything about it. But Putz's wife managed to convince the German government to send a special ambassador to the platform and try to negotiate for Putz's release upon the ambassador's arrival, he was refused and sent away. But soon after, they did go ahead and release Putz. And so after, this was after six weeks of being imprisoned on the fort. And Sealand argued that the direct interaction with the German government in the form of an ambassador accomplished all that was needed for de facto recognition by another nation. And so, they think... This just feels like he's, he's just trying to catch people on technicalities and like, oh, oh, okay. you, you sent somebody over. And you know what that they, means. They entered into relations with another state. They had the capacity to do so. Putz and Achenbach, after this incident, because... There just has to be more. Uh, they got together and claimed to be the true members of the government of Sealand, um, but they were going to rule the nation in exile. They were a government in exile known as the Sealand Rebel Government. Oh, gosh. And this, is, this just sounds so petty. So, yeah, there's a. A micronation on a man-made platform in the middle of the ocean. They create themselves to be a kingdom, or a principality, I guess, but same difference. This kingdom then has a coup, and then you have two rival governments claiming to be the sole rulers of this island. And... Yeah. So, yeah. This just continues with the idea of a 12-year-old is has a little tree fort or something. It's like, all right, this is my government. This is what I'm doing. And then their brother or somebody is the one that's coming in, you know, to, to 
throw to do the coup and then it's like oh well well mom and dad come get involved with this please and it's like oh okay fine they won't do it so we'll, we're, we're still in charge of the fort even though we're back in the house but but you know we're, we're in charge of it it sounds like such like a sibling rivalry at this point yeah but uh because there just has to be more there has to be more uh, if you think a coup d'etat is the only interesting thing to happen, you'd be surprised. So you remember how I said that Prince Roy had issued passports to friends and family? Mm-hmm. Well, you could also buy them as a novelty item. You know, as, oh, I got a Sealand passport. Ha ha ha. Mm-hmm. Well, in total, the royal family had issued around 300 official Sea Lantern passports. And, you know, they don't really mean anything. They're novelty, or they're classified as novelty by most nations of the world. They, they're not taken seriously, really, but... Uh, it's not really a big issue, doesn't mean anything until the 1990s. In 1997, fashion superstar Gianni Versace was, he was assassinated. Well, the man who assassinated Versace had a Sealander passport in his possession. And this got different police forces began to investigate why would this guy have a fake passport? Well, they uncovered that apparently a lot of criminals had had access to Sealander passports or official license plates and even diplomas from fake Sealander universities. Oh my god. Uh, it turns out there was a huge market for forged documents that had these Sealand insignias on it that criminals would use to launder money and skirt around the lower levels of law enforcement who were unaware of the dubious nature of Sealand being a real, legit government. Because, like, you go to someone on the opposite side of the world, someone like you who had never heard of Sealand, and you hand them a Sealand passport, you know, to cross a border or to show some form of ID, and, you know, just a person who has no idea, they just trust you because why would you show them a fake passport from a completely fake place, right? Yeah. Yeah, what the yeah, there's a huge market for these. And uh, it turns out that a portion of these counterfeits could actually be traced back to the Sealand rebel government in exile with Achenbach because... Oh, just, just trying to sabotage? Just trying probably? to make money off of selling. You know, he's a money-making man. Oh, I, yeah, okay. And so, uh, not all of them, but... Uh, at a sizable portion and in 2000 in Spain the police busted a gang that had used 
Sealander documents to secure a loan of 20 million euros to buy private jets. And they were about to use these fake documents again to secure weapons that they were then going to sell to the nation of Sudan, which at the time was under international embargo for being a terrorist state. What loan officer okayed that? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, they, they came up with some, like, real real good-looking passports, you know? Like, I, I, thought, I thought it looked legit, but, like, who, who got fired for that? Honestly, right? Oh, man. Uh, so, yeah, just crazy-ass stuff. And uh, these shenanigans ultimately led the royal family to revoke all Sealander passports. They are no longer really an option that you are able to purchase or be awarded in any capacity. Understandably so. I would say so, yeah. So yeah, that's the history of Sealand, but what's kind of going on there nowadays? Well, in 1987, the UK legally expanded its territorial waters along with pretty much the rest of the world. They changed it to where it is now up to 12 miles from the shore, which the principality comfortably falls into. Uh, This makes international recognition of their claims at sovereignty a bit more difficult. Um, But it is important to note that occupation, going back to that Montevideo convention, uh, a state or nation will not recognize territorial acquisitions that result from the use of an occupying military force. So, you know, they could argue that if they wanted to. So, yeah, it's kind of just floated along, you know, gets a lot of bad publicity for the coup and also the fake passport stuffs really hurts. They're not really able to find a buyer for the nation. Um, But whenever the internet comes around, you know, it's a good data storage and cryptocurrency, you know, there's possibly some hope for them with that. Oh, God, please. Please don't. Please, please don't tell me they like minted an NFT or something. Uh, I, I don't know if they've minted NFTs yet. Uh, but, yeah, server farms and all that stuff. I mean, you got two concrete pillars that are kept cool by the ocean. And in international waters, you know, you could argue. Or formerly international waters, I guess. But, uh yeah. So yeah, there, there's some possibility for something to develop with that, but right now it hasn't happened really yet. So is the family still like on there regularly, or is it kind of fine? 
So in 2012, Prince Roy passed away from Alzheimer's at the age of 91. And his son, Michael, inherited the title Prince of Sealand. Princess Joan passed away in 2016 at the age of 86. And today, the royal family keeps the platform permanently populated. Um, I, I think he, you know, Prince Michael said, I think it was like 2016, whenever asked about the permanent population, he says usually two people. And most of the time, those are the security guards that they've hired to keep a watch over the island while none of the family is there. Uh-huh. Because they don't want someone to kind of just go and try and steal it again. Um, so yeah, permanent population of about two most of the time. You can go to the principality's official website and buy merch. That's a way for them to get money. Uh, You know, you can buy a flag, you can buy stamps. Prince Michael wrote a book about growing up on the fort and the coup and all that stuff. You can buy that on the website. And while passports may not be for sale, you could purchase a title of nobility from the Micronation. You know, you could be a lord, a lady, a baron a sir, a count, a duke. Um, and whenever I checked, you know, it, they have options for any pocketbook. You know, you can be a lord for about 50 bucks, or you can be a duke for about 650 bucks. So, however high rank you want to be. But yeah, that is the Brief history of the great Principality of Sealand Long May She Reign. So what do you think? Does uh, it qualify to be a real nation? Does it meet your standard of approval? I mean, like you said, de facto, I feel like two different countries in some way or another acknowledging it are a lot further than something a lot of people can get. Yeah. And I mean, nothing's been done for the UK to reclaim it or anything, so I think that gives it even more validity. Yeah. But remember, according to international law, it really technically doesn't matter what we think. (laughs) Because we're just individuals. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And they have the innate sovereignty. Or so they would argue. Yeah. Yeah. I think the best part about Sealand is uh, it, it's like an exercise in seeing that those who have the power to make the rules can choose whether or not to follow the rules because, you know, if there's no one to keep them accountable, then they can just play by their own game. Um, yeah. And so I think Sealand and other micronations, they really poke fun at this idea 
you know, trying to keep the big countries accountable to the system that they've created. Yeah, it's all it's all social commentary, really. Yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, so. Uh, so, what was the thing that you thought you'd heard about Sealand? What? So I thought, like, I'd heard of the uh, like sea forts uh-huh. before. There's actually like a like a survival game that I used to play um, that like had them in the game. You know, just like cool old sea forts abandoned. You know, World War II style, whatever. But I thought I had heard um, that there was a specific one that was actually being used as a hotel. And so that's where I thought you were going for a little bit, but I don't think that was actually the same one. But yeah. It could have been. I'm not sure. I, I don't know that they actually formally put up a hotel there, so uh, I doubt. Yeah, let me look it up real quick. Yeah. It seems like there is. Yeah, there is one. There's uh, one. But it's from like the 1700s, so it's not, oh, okay. it's not at all what I was thinking. So, okay, my bad. No worries. That's still pretty cool to look at, though. <clears throat> but, um, so, yeah, I guess I'll go ahead and close this out for today's episode. Uh, I put some sources down in the show notes, so you, like I usually do. If there's people that want to go dig a little deeper into this subject and maybe create their own micronation i don't know there's a wide community of like-minded people out there so if you wanted to you'd find them but our music uh is by mountaineer you can find their music and more on upbeat.io uh the other music at the top of the episode was actually the sealand national anthem which i think is kind of a bop as far as instrumental national anthems go. Uh, As always, we want to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on occupied land that rightfully belongs to the Kiowa, the Comanche, Tonkwa, as well as other indigenous peoples. And if you enjoyed the episode and learned something new, tell your friends about us or leave us a review again, you know. Make them learn something for a change. You can be the smart one to tell them something new. Uh, if you have any questions, suggestions for future episodes, or you just want to say hi, you can reach out to us at History Spelunkers. That's history, S-P-E-L-U-N-K-E-R-S, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for coming down the rabbit hole with me. Till next time. Bye-bye.
Well, I will say there are a few times that I'm actually like surprised by things anymore. <laughs> like, so many things are like, oh yeah, that's kind of weird, but like I could see that coming, but like I had no freaking idea where that was going at any point. It's whack. It's whack. Yeah. 